0: Good morning. Good morning. If you haven't already, get your Bibles. Uh, Turn to Genesis chapter 9. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 29. And thus, this morning, we will finally be concluding the story of the flood with our sixth and final sermon. Man, it's quite the conclusion. Our passage last week seems like the perfect way to end the story. We've been at this now for four chapters. The story of the flood and Noah dominates the first 11 chapters of the whole Bible. This whole section that is given over to beginnings is taken up by four chapters for this one story. It's been a whole lot of judgment, but also, as we've seen, it's been a whole lot of grace. We tend to focus on the story of the flood as a story of judgment when our text itself highlights the grace. Remember, the central pivotal line is chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. God rescues Noah. This is a story of grace. We can only understand the flood if we understand the reason for the flood. Genesis 6, 5, the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. That evil then expressed itself in great violence in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. And since, as we saw last week, God greatly values life. He loves life. He's the God of life. He wants life to flourish and develop. Well, then he must intervene with the flood to wipe out evil for the purpose of protecting life. And so he graciously spares Noah. He begins again. He creates his new world again with his new Adam. And everything is ready for a new beginning. So God twice commands them, be fruitful and multiply. There's a command about the goodness of life, spread it. Twice he says that he has established his covenant with them, in which he promises to sustain the systems of life. And then twice he promises never again to wipe out life with a flood. What a wonderful resolution to a difficult story. What a positive way to conclude all that negativity. But, but that's not actually the end. That's not actually The conclusion, this actually is the end of the story. And we immediately end the recreation almost identically to how we ended the first creation, if Genesis 8 and the first part of 9 are Genesis 1 and 2 all over again, then the second part of Genesis 9 is Genesis 3 all over again. For the second Adam turns out to be just a little bit too much like the first Adam. So we're going to read this story, this concluding, summarizing story of the flood, and we're going to be confused. It's a strange story. And so we want to be asking ourselves, why is this here? Why is this the way that this hugely important story concludes? There's going to be hints throughout the text that tell us why. Remember, one of the general patterns of Scripture that we've talked about recently, there's this constant back and forth throughout the Bible. God starts off creation with one man, Adam, and then in chapters 4 and 5, we then trace the expansion of that one to the many. From this one man came all men. But then in chapter 6, we started to trace the contraction from the many back down to the one. At the beginning of the flood account, there were many men, and then here at the end, there is the one man, Noah. Well, now the pendulum is swinging again. You've got to read the end of chapter 9 in light of chapters 10 and 11. So again, we start with Noah, then the three sons of Noah, and then we're going to burst into and trace that expansion again until we get to the many. Only again then to immediately trace the contraction back down to the one man, Abraham, in chapter 12. This is the story transitioning to Abraham. This story is trying to get us to Abraham. The next two chapters are just trying to get us to Abraham. He's going to be arguably the key figure in the whole story until we get to Christ. So this pattern of the one to the many back down to the one continues throughout the whole story until we get to Christ. The many fall, the one saves. That's what Noah has just done. Everyone has fallen. Noah saves. But tragically, as we're about to see, Noah, the one, is also going to fall. Noah is thus not the one. So we've got to keep looking. We've made the argument that Genesis 3.15 is the whole story of the Bible in miniature. Two seeds, two offspring, two peoples, seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. The whole Bible is unpacking that theme. Well, similarly, you could argue that this especially verses 25 through 27, is the rest of the Bible in miniature. This is the rest of the story. This is transitioning us to the next stage. This is getting us to 10 and 11, which just exist to get us to 12, and the rest of the story. So we've had six parts now to the flood story. We've seen the reason, the rescue, the rain, the recreation, the rainbow, and we close now with the revelation. Because what God is doing is pulling back the curtain and showing us ahead of time what is about to happen. The great story of redemption is going to take off in chapter 12. Entire peoples and movements and histories are laid out for us in these few verses. This is a key piece to the puzzle of God's great plan. So if you want to understand what he's doing and how he's doing it, you need to understand this passage. There are going to be five main characters in our story. We're going to organize it by just drawing one point from each one of them. We're going to see the sin of Noah, which is then going to lead to the sin of Ham, which is then going to result in the curse of Canaan, followed by the blessing of Shem, which is going to leave us then with the gospel of Japheth, which we just read about in Ephesians chapter 2. So let me read the chapter for you. You're going to be confused, and that's good. Then we're going to walk through it and try and see and understand what's going on here. So let me read it for you. Genesis chapter 9. We're starting in the middle there at verse 18. I'll read down through verse 29. You can follow along in your copy of the scripture. You'll need it open in front of you. It will be helpful. But this is God's word for you today. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, And he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Bow with me, and let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, thank you for all of it. Thank you even for strange stories such as these. Father, we believe that all scripture is inspired by you. I think that all of it is profitable, including this story. Father, we need you to give us understanding. We need you to guide us and, and direct us. Father, I desperately need you to speak and to work through your word in this time. We can accomplish nothing apart from you. We can accomplish great things uh, with you and in the power of your spirit. So, Father, speak, O Lord. Show us Christ in your word today. And we ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I told you it was a strange story. If you haven't read it before, you're yeah, wait, What? what's going on here? Why is it here? Well, let's start first with the sin of Noah. But before we get to that, we've got to deal with verses 18 and 19. Again, the first point sin of Noah, but our first verses are making the point that Noah isn't really the point of this story. We are now transitioning away from Noah. He's going to play an important role in this story, but the focus is shifting away from Noah to Noah's sons. And verse 18 directs our attention to them. Not Noah, but the sons of Noah went forth from the ark, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, Moses has been dropping clues for us that we're moving in this direction. His sons have basically played no role in the story up until this point, but he's kind of kept dropping their names here and there to kind of get us ready for this. First one is mentioned back in chapter 6, verse 10. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Then they show up again in chapter 7, verse 13. When the rains came down and the floods came up, on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, And Japheth, they enter into the ark. Well, now here they are exiting the ark. So the focus is now on them, but there's something else strange. The pattern of listing them this same way is broken. All of a sudden, completely out of nowhere, we have the first new character named since all the way back in chapter 5. This is out of nowhere. This is important. This is big. This is significant. Shem, Ham, Japheth, parentheses, Ham was the father of Canaan. It's kind of like Woodside Community Church, parentheses Baptist, right? Wait, what? (laughs) What's the parentheses doing? Why is that there? Why is this mysterious Canaan mentioned all of a sudden? Who is this guy? Exactly. That's the point of the parentheses. That's the point of this sudden and unexpected introduction. Canaan is the point. Whatever is about to happen... It's going to have to have a lot to do with Canaan. And just in case we're not sure about this, Moses will do it again for us in verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, wait a second, why does he keep mentioning that? Because he wants you to get the idea that Canaan is largely the point of the story. We're going to come back to that at the end. But we have another clue as to the point of the story in verse 19. These were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. That's chapter 10. We're going to transition to that. We're going to do that next week. You don't think I'm going to read all of chapter 10. I will read all of chapter 10 next week. I've already been practicing the names. We will read it. Um, this is about Canaan, and it's somehow about all the peoples. So we're coming to that. And that finally then gets us ready for point number one, the sin of of Noah. Yeah, not the main point of the story. I read and looked at and listened to a lot of sermons that made this the point of the story, Because, but we can't do that because the text doesn't make this the point of the story, but we still need to look at it. Look at 20 and 21. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Like I said, it's, it's strange. And just to make it more odd and out of place, make sure and read those verses in light of everything we've read about Noah up until this point. Chapter six, verse nine. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his in his generation. Noah walked with God. Chapter six, verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Chapter seven, verse five. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Chapter nine, verse 20. Noah got drunk and naked. What? Right? There's a couple of things to note here. Keep in mind one thing. The text never says anything about the sinfulness of Noah's actions here. We'll see that it's obviously sin, but again, the text isn't focused on Noah's sin, but on Ham's sin. And there are a couple of other things that just aren't entirely clear. So let's be careful of going beyond what is written. First off, what does it mean when it says that Noah began to be a man of the soil? Well, the Hebrew there is particularly <laughs> difficult, but we know that it can't mean that Noah was the first farmer, right? The first man of the soil. God had put Adam in the garden in chapter two, fifteen to work it and keep it. Chapter four, verse two tells us that Cain was a worker of the ground. Or if you're in the Pew Bible and you look down at the bottom of the page, at footnote three, you'll see that the Hebrew could be saying that, that, that he's not the first man of the ground, but he's the first to plant a vineyard. But even that is, is hard to say definitively. The main point is that he plants a vineyard. It's either for the first time or he's picking back on something, picking back up on something that was already done before the flood, which itself would be a testimony to God's grace or the promise he's just made. In the previous verses, those are coming true. The land is restored. There is stability. There is planting. There is growing. There is harvesting. There is blessing coming from the ground. Because again, in our, you know, denominational background, this is controversial, but it shouldn't be, the Bible's position overwhelmingly is positive when it comes to wine and alcohol. It's pretty simple. In scripture, drink good, drunk bad. That's it. That's the Bible's teaching on wine. This is supposed to be a blessing. This is such a good thing that many commentators look back on Lamech's prophecy of his son Noah in 529. Remember, Lamech had said, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. Well, many argue that this is the relief, that wine is the relief. Because wine was so important and so central to ancient societies. Other cultures believe that wine was so good that it had to be a gift from the gods, right? So in Egyptian culture, mythology, wine is given to the people by the god Osiris. In Greek mythology, it is the god Dionysus who gives the people the great gift of wine. But here we see that it's developed by man, by Noah, maybe. And this is just like what we saw in the second part of chapter 4. Remember, it was the best of times It was the worst of times. Mankind has incredible capability to create good things. And then it has an equally incredible capability to abuse those good things. That's what's happening here. Wine is good. Wine is a blessing. Psalm 104.15, we stopped just short of this last week in the scripture reading. The whole point of the psalm praising God for how great he is, praising God for all the good things that he's done for his people. One of those good things is the blessing of food and drink. The psalmist says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. So there's scripture saying wine is a blessing from God for the purpose of gladdening the heart. In Jotham's parable, in Judges 9, various trees are talking about the great gifts that they offer and that they bring. And the vine says, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men? So we've got wine cheers God and men. So again, scripture is overwhelmingly positive about the good and right use of wine, but it is equally overwhelmingly negative about the bad and wrong abuse of wine. Well, it's all over the place. Proverbs twenty-three twenty, for example, it says, be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. Right? Drunkenness is sinful and drunkenness brings ruin. But again, do notice there in the scriptures how it equates wine with food, and drunkard with glutton. No one says that because there's such a thing as gluttony, which this verse equates with drunkenness, that we should just do away with food entirely. But that's the exact argument that many make with wine. Wine is not the problem. Food is not the problem. It's the abuse of these good gifts that are such a problem. Abuse does not negate proper use. So the problem is not the wine. The problem is Noah. He's just like the rest of us. He is a sinner. And this episode should completely disavow us of any lingering notion that Noah was spared from the flood because he was righteous, because he was better than everyone else. You know, we still tend to think everyone else bad, judgment, Noah good, salvation. No, here we're seeing Noah bad. Therefore, Noah's only hope was and remains the grace of God. And again, though this is not the point of the text, Noah should serve as a warning to us. Imagine the pressure that he stood up against. Probably public. We assume there was ridicule. Surely people thought that he was a fool. And he stood strong. Not a problem. But it was once the spotlight was off and the pressure was down that Noah fell. Sometimes it's easy to stand in the face of great pressure. It's often much more difficult to stand when nobody else is around. The great Puritan commentator, Matthew Henry, he writes this, "'Sometimes those who, with watchfulness and resolution, "'have, by the grace of God, "'kept their integrity in the midst of temptation, "'have, through security and carelessness "'and neglect of the grace of God, "'been surprised into sin.'" when the hour of temptation has been over noah who had kept sober and drunk in drunken company is now drunk in sober company let him that thinks he stands take heed be wary of the surprising nature of sin and it is often when the temptation has passed that we are most susceptible to it take heed This episode makes me think of God's warning to Cain back in chapter 4. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. We've only got two more weeks in the first part of Genesis. But one of the things that I most love about these first 11 chapters is that they give us such a realistic picture of sin. Genesis 3 shows us how appealing and nice and tempting it can look. Genesis 3 and 4 shows us the devastating consequences of sin, separation from God. Sin separates and separation from each other. It destroys our vertical relationship and it destroys our horizontal relationships. Genesis 5 shows us the wages of sin is death and how even the most godly die as a result of sin. Genesis 6 shows us just how widespread and universal sin is, and then Genesis 6 through 9, and the flood show very explicitly what God thinks of sin. He hates it. So he wants to wipe it from the face of his good creation. You may think we talk about sin uh, too much. Church growth movements and all of you talk less about sin. It's so negative. I can't. It's The whole point of this story is sin. Everything that happens from Genesis 3 to the rest of the Bible is because of sin. And the more I grow in the Lord, the more I mature, the more I realize how awful I am, and the more I minister, the more I realize how awful all of us are, right? I can't stop talking about sin because you can't stop doing it, and I can't stop doing it. And it's there, and it's ever-present reality, and you don't yet know how sinful you are. And I don't yet know how sinful I am. And if we understand it, we can get rid of any of these ridiculous ideas. That we can do anything for God or to earn his favor. And if we can see just how sinful we are, then we can see, oh, he is so gracious. And he is so good to me. Look at Noah's sin. And look how he is treated and how he is counted. And look at the grace that saves him from that sin. You're Noah. Not in the righteous, blameless sense, but in the drunk, naked, in the tenth sense. That's all of us. Yes. And if you don't know it yet, you will. And it's coming. Right? We've got to face this. And Genesis, like nothing else, gives us a graphic picture and look at sin. Again, I'm most attracted to the Christian faith because there's nothing else that shows me and looks and honestly says, Yep, you're a mess. Scripture does. And it points me to God's provision of grace. This is what we need. Sin is ever present in these chapters and it's still just as present after the flood because as Jesus says in Mark 7 to the Pharisees, the problem's not all the wickedness and evil out there. The problem is the wickedness and evil in here. Like we have a heart problem. Noah has a heart problem. Noah, the new Adam, at the start of God's recreation, his new creation, Just like the old Adam, right? There's a tree, there's the fruit of that tree, and then there's the new Adam sinning with the fruit of that tree. What happens when the first Adam sins with the fruit of the tree? His eyes are opened, he's aware of his nakedness, and there is shame. What happens when the new Adam sins with the fruit of the tree? He passes out naked, and there is great shame. It's the same thing. The flood has fixed nothing. Which leads us to point number two. The sin of Noah is not the point of the story. But again, take heed, because it is the sin of Noah that is the occasion for the sin that is the point of the story. The sin of Ham. Noah's passed out, drunk and naked. Look at verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Stop. Stop. All right, so we know from verse 25 that whatever is happening here is really bad. Ham's actions result in curse. The horrible nature of the curse must reveal the horrible nature of the crime. That much is clear. But what is a little less clear is the precise nature of that crime. Right, what really did Ham do? I Again, mean, good no. question. All the text says is that Ham saw the nakedness of his Father. Because of the severity of the curse to follow, there are all kinds of attempts to more fully explain what exactly that means. But the text doesn't give us anything else to go on. So I think that all of these attempts are a bit of an overreach and are difficult to maintain from the text. But it's been going on for thousands of years. The Talmud, which is considered the the scripture in in rabbinic Judaism. The Talmud is basically just rabbinic commentary on the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, including this, Genesis. The Talmud argues that Ham castrates Noah. Why? Well, notice that back in Genesis 5, in the genealogy of the line of Seth, for every other individual, he fathers a son, and then it says, and he had other sons and daughters. But notice that we finally get to the conclusion of that genealogy with the death of Noah in verse 28 of our chapter, and he's the only one of these individuals for whom it doesn't say he had other sons and daughters. He lived 350 years after the flood, 950 years total. Why no more children? Well, the Jewish commentators argue this because of what Ham does here. It's just not there, I don't think. They have to read that into the text.
1: Which others also
0: do by arguing that Ham's sin must be some sort of, uh, of sexual sin. Right? They'll cover, they'll connect it to the uncovered of verse 21, uh, the seeing of the nakedness in verse 22. If you go read Leviticus chapter 20, you'll see some of this terminology and some of these phrases used as, as euphemisms for some sort of sexual immorality. So they argue that Sam, Ham must have done something here or they'll point out the strange fact of verse 25, which we're going to have to deal with in a moment. Ham does some horrible thing, and Noah says, curse it be, Canaan. What? <laughs> Why Canaan? Who's Canaan? What did he do? So they'll take that fact and argue that this actually must refer to incest. So while Noah was drunk, Ham slept with Noah's wife, and since Noah curses Canaan, he must be the child that is born from this union. Again, I'm trying to just illustrate there are people going to all kinds of great lengths to come up with some explanation for these difficult verses. But our job is always to simply ask, what does the text say? Well, the text simply says that Ham saw Noah's nakedness. and Maybe, maybe it's just as simple as that. And maybe our need to construct some sort of horrible crime is due in part to the fact that we don't actually really believe that the crime of dishonoring your father is really that horrible. I would argue that we almost have no frame of reference for what's happening in this text because of the deplorable state of parenting in which we find ourselves today. We don't understand why the first commandment of the second table of the law is honor your father and mother. But we get not murdering, we get no adultery, we get no stealing. But if we're honest with ourselves, and if we look at how we actually parent, the proof is in the pudding. We don't actually really believe that this is that big of a deal. And we have no idea what to do with Exodus twenty fifteen. Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Much less do we have any idea what to do with verse 17. Whoever curses or dishonors his father or his mother shall be put to death. Now, and of course, being part of the civil code of the kingdom of ancient Israel, the punishment no longer applies, of course. But the principle is exactly the same. Right? The point of the severity of the punishment is meant to convey to us the severity of the crime, which means that the dishonoring of father and mother in God's eyes is the highest of crimes. Calvin writes this. Calvin says, we know that parents next to God are most deeply to be reverenced, and if there were neither books nor sermons, nature itself constantly impresses this lesson upon us. It is received by common consent that piety towards parents is the mother of all virtues. Parents, do you believe that piety towards you is the mother of all other virtues? Do you parent in light of the biblical truth that dishonoring you is the worst thing that your children can do? Again, as I watch parents uh, bow down to their children, and I watch children run rampant over their parents, yelling, striking, fighting, doing whatever they want, getting their way, and the parents scrambling to get out of their way and appease them by offering these little sinful self-sovereigns whatever sacrifices they want to appease them, I'm confident that we often don't believe this. The horrible curse that we're about to look at is a result of the horrible crime of ham dishonoring His father. It's not just that he saw him naked. It's that he saw and it seems that he delighted. He laughed. He mocked. Instead of covering his father's nakedness and shame, he ran out and publicized his father's nakedness and shame. Instead of covering, he exposed. Instead of honoring, he dishonored his father. No. Parents, how do you respond to the dishonor of your children? What are you doing about the dishonor of your children? Guys, do we understand why this is so important? The fifth commandment is pivotal. It's so much more than just, hey, be nice to your parents. Because how we relate to the various authorities in our life is an indication of how we relate to the authority of all of life. That's why some actually argue that the fifth commandment is not actually the first commandment of the second table of the law focused on our horizontal relationships. But the fifth commandment is actually the last commandment of the first table of the law because it's ultimately about how we relate to the authorities that God has put in place in our life, which is ultimately about how we relate to him. When I realized this was what the fifth commandment was about, and authorities the reflecting of how we actually relate to God, it was really convicting to me because it based upon how I think about and relate to police officers, right? I hate authority, right? I don't like being told to slow down. I don't like being uh, pulled over. I've been snappy before um, with police officers. You can't tell me what to do. Well, what do you doing? Know? You're bothering me. I, yeah, I didn't buckle my seat, but what's the big deal? Uh, all these terrible things. And then I started to realize that there's actually a big problem towards my attitudes towards these authorities over me in my life because that's actually somewhat of an indication of my attitude toward the authority in my life. How do you respond to authority? That's what the fifth commandment is about. It's God who has put these authorities in our lives. He's the invisible God. He gives us these these visible authorities and how we relate to them is indicative of how we actually think about and relate to him. So parents... Are you teaching your children to honor and respect your authority and thus to honor and respect God? And how do you teach little children to honor and respect your authority and thus to honor and respect God's authority? Teach them to obey you, right? Children, obey your parents, right? That's, that's scripture. That's Colossians. That's Ephesians, right? Are we doing that? Are we raising hams or are we raising ships? Because there's a great contrast drawn between these two sons. Look at verse 23. Notice the contrast. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's face nakedness. Here's why whatever's going on with with Ham, and no, it can't be anything more than Ham seeing and dishonoring, because the opposite, the contrast, is them not seeing, and is them covering, right? He dishonors his father. They honor their father. He exposes his father's shame. They cover his father's shame. They honor him, even in his weakness, and in his shame, and in his Sin. Good. I'm Noah, so I desperately want children that are going to honor me, even in the midst of my sin and my shame and in my weakness. Are we publishers of faults, or are we protectors of the honor of others? Are we uncoverers of shame, or are we coverers of shame? There is the sin of Ham, it is the dishonoring of his father. And it's a lot more significant than we think that it is today. Let's see what happens next. Point number three. Pick up the pace here. The sin of Noah leads to the sin of Ham, which then results in the curse of Canaan. Verse 24. Noah wakes up. He knows what's happened. We don't know how he knows what's happened. Somebody told him. He just doesn't tell us. Uh, Verse 25. He said, he speaks. Remember, these are the first four chapters of the flood all about Noah. No, Noah speaking. He hasn't said, uttered a single word or line in the entire story up until this point. That makes these words pretty important. Here are Noah's first words. Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And so the obvious, I mean, the big question that just books have been written about him, gallons of ink and oceans of ink have been spilled over is why does he curse Canaan? who is Canaan anyways? Where did he come from? Again, to some degree we're left to speculate because the text doesn't tell us. The text doesn't seem as concerned to give us the answers that we demand. Some argue that Canaan must have been there. He must have been a party to the crime. Who knows? The text doesn't tell us. But... If you think about it, if the crime is what we've said it just was, a son dishonoring his father, then there is some sort of poetic justice in the fact that this pronouncement is made against the son of the son who dishonored his father. For his assault on the family, his own family would be assaulted. again, So it's somewhat appropriate. But that's not all that's going on here. We've got to go back to why Canaan is largely the point of the story that we mentioned at the beginning. I mean, we talk a lot about the importance of context, right? you got to know what the text is around your text to understand it. But there's more than just textual context. There's also historical context. Why is this new character Canaan mentioned five times out of nowhere in this short and strange story? Context. Don't forget to whom and when this book was originally written. It was originally written to Israel in the wilderness, on the way to the promised land, on the way to Canaan. For them, this story would have taken on all kinds of important meaning. This isn't just about whatever the individual Ham or Canaan did or did not do. This is also in part in anticipation of what the Canaanites will also do. Like father, like son. They will not be punished arbitrarily for someone else's sin, but they will be punished for their sin that is just like the sin of their forefathers. We struggle with this idea because we've lost any sort of sense of, of this idea of corporate solidarity. But in Scripture, the character of the sons is anticipated by the character and the deeds of the fathers. Hebrew theology recognized how great parental influence was. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So this curse is spoken against the Canaanites, not just because of the sin of Ham, but because they themselves would act just like Ham and would be justly deserving of such a curse. A curse. We've talked about it a lot. We've seen it since Genesis 3. We've got to understand what's going on here. This is important because this is actually the first prophecy in Scripture. Sort of. We've talked a lot about Genesis 3.15. That's a prophecy, of course, but it's spoken by God. This is the first prophecy in Scripture spoken by man. So this matters. Keep in mind that we have to understand Noah has no power in and of himself to actually bring about the curse or the blessing that he is speaking. His words have no power in themselves unless God performs them. These words are meaningless unless they are God's words and unless God is going to bring about their fulfillment. You can curse me all you want. I'm not going to be too worried about it. But when God is behind the words, that's a different story. You made me think there's, there's some there's some book strange bookstore in Brooklyn that spends a lot of their time pronouncing curses against the president. and it's, I read an article about it. It was really strange. I'm um, not too worried about it. God's word different. These words are prophetic. These words are revelatory. This is the revelation telling us ahead of time what is about to happen in the grand story of redemption. This is setting the stage for the people of God, starting with Abraham, running through Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, then to Moses, and then Israel, on their way into the promised land, on their way to remove the Canaanites from that land. Why are they being removed from the land? Not because Israel was so great, right? But because of their own great sin. I mentioned earlier, Leviticus 18, kind of the big chapter on sexual immorality. Um, at the end of it, God summarizes it, saying, Don't do all of these things. Verse 24, for by all of these things, the nations that I am driving out before you the Canaanites have become unclean and the land has become unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. I mean, you can go back and read about Canaanite worship. It's just marked by, by rampant uh, sexual immorality, by, by ritual sex and, and prostitution and homosexuality and idolatry. And even child sacrifice but was a part of Canaanite worship. That's why they're going to be punished for their sins, that sin that is so similar to the sins of their forefathers. So Canaan is cursed. Now again, one thing, again, we're not going to answer all the questions about it because the text doesn't tell us. One thing though that we do need to take note of, note that this is not the curse of Ham. There is no curse of Ham. It doesn't exist. In Scripture. So the tragic and shameful attempt of many in the past to justify the enslavement of African people based upon the supposed curse of Ham is completely foreign to the text and completely anti-gospel. This has nothing to do with ethnicity, but with morality. They are cursed for their wickedness. Plus, note, this is really interesting, Ham sins. If you look over at chapter 10, verse 6, Ham has four sons. Only one of the sons is cursed, and it's not Cush, who many believe is the forefather of the African peoples, right? So again, the whole idea is absurd. It's just another example of sinful men taking and twisting the scriptures to serve their own wicked ends. There is no curse of Ham. It is the curse of Canaan, about the Canaanite people that Israel was going in to dispossess from the land. Let's not leave it there though, because there's also a blessing. The blessing of Shin. No run out of time. We're going to look at these next two um, also next week as well. So we'll run through them here and then we'll unpack them more next week. Look at verse 26. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shin, and let Canaan be his servant. I and mean, don't miss how this is worded. Right? We, we just had cursed be Canaan. So you would expect this to be blessed be Shin. But it's not. It's blessed be the God of Shem. It's the exact same thing we see with Noah. Canaan gets justice because of his wickedness. Shem gets blessing because of God's grace. The blessed be the Lord recognizes and acknowledges that whatever good is about to come to Shem will be God's doing. And so remember, we're talking about curse. And we're talking about blessing. A curse is simply a pronouncement of bad, and a blessing is simply a pronouncement of good. We're about to end our service with a benediction. Bene is good. Diction is to speak. It's it's to word. A benediction is God's good word from God's word pronounced over us. Right. That's what a blessing is, a good word. A curse is simply a bad word, a mala, evil, bad diction. Right. That's the word for curse, bad speak. So Noah's speaking bad over Canaan. He's speaking good over Shem. We've seen that the first is the father of the Canaanites, who are going to be the bad guys in the rest of the story. That means that the second is the father of the Israelites, who are going to be the good guys in a sense in the story, right? You don't want to be an anti Semite. It should be anti Shemite, right? It's the Shemites. It's coming from Shem, from his name here. Shem then is the father of the people of God, which means that Shem is the offspring of the woman about to enter into conflict with Canaan, the offspring of the serpent. It's still Genesis 3.15. It's two peoples. The seed of the serpent survived the flood in the person of Ham, and thus the promised predicted champion, the snake crusher, the defeater of sin and Satan is still needed. This blessing is the promise that the seed of the woman would come through the line of Shem. That people, that the people of Shem are then the covenant people of God. Remember the core principle of that covenant. I will be their God and they will be my people. They are blessed because they are chosen by God and they are blessed because they are the ones through whom God is going to continue the line, And that's the line that we're going to trace for the next two weeks. There's going to be a whole lot of names. But as we've said, it's all to get to one name. It's all to get to Abraham. Chapters 1 through 11, universal. Chapters 12 through 50, national. Chapters 1 through 11, all peoples. Chapters 12 through 50, one people. But why does God, after talking about all these people, why does he then transition and call out just that one people? Why does he choose the one man, Abraham, through whom he would continue this line? Shem was blessed. Abraham was blessed. Genesis 12, 2. Here's the same thing. I will bless your name, and I will make your name great. Why? He tells us, so that you will be a Blessing. And then he says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know what Paul calls that? He calls it the gospel. You see, we've now again narrowed down to one people, the one man, but it's for the purpose of being a blessing to all those peoples that we're going to look at in chapters 10 and 11. It was never just about Israel. The point was never Israel. The point is that through Shem, through Abraham, through Israel, God was going to bless all the families of the earth. How? Last point. No time. Real quick. The blessing of Shem leads to the gospel of Japheth. This was next week, but let's look at it. Look at verse 27. Here's the third son. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. This is a really cool verse uh, for which you should be really thankful. Um, We're going to look at this next week. We'll we'll trace the peoples. We'll look at the lines. We'll we'll see that the Japhethites are largely kind of the Indo-European peoples as they go north and then east and and then west and settle. So who really then are the Japhethites? It's the Gentiles. This this prophecy is never fulfilled in the Old Testament, but it is immediately fulfilled in the New Testament. This is what we just read in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, remember Gentiles, at one time you were separated, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, alienated from Shem, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. But now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near have been brought into the tents by the blood of Christ. He has created in himself one new man in the place of two. There was Shem, and there was Japheth, there was Jew, and there was Gentile, and now there is one, the church in Christ, so making peace, peace reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross. This is the gospel according to Japheth. God is the God of Shem. The prophecy spoken over Japheth is that one day he too would dwell in the tents of Shem by implication and then be included in the blessing of Shem. This is how all the nations of the earth are blessed through Shem. This is the mystery of the gospel as Paul explains in Ephesians 3 6 where he says the Gentiles are fellow heirs. They're members of the same body. They're takers of the same promise, this promise, this promise that is ultimately about Christ Jesus, because he is how God would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. He is the snake crusher promised from the beginning in Genesis 3.15. He is the one who would defeat sin and Satan by crushing the head of the snake. How does he crush the head of the snake? It tells us by the snake crushing his heel. In other words, he dies. It's victory through death. Guys, we've seen so much death in our church life last year and some of you guys' lives. And then obviously in this text, death is just everywhere. And then notice how the story ends. This great, long, big, grand story about God's grace and redemption and what's he doing it ends on the exact same note. Noah, the great righteous blameless one, the one who would bring us relief, the one who would bring us rest. Oh yeah, he died too, just like the rest of them. This whole thing, this whole story is a parenthesis within Genesis chapter five. This is the conclusion of Genesis chapter five. We never got the Noah last line until now, this line. So this finishes that story. He died. He's not the one. Death is still our problem. It still hangs over our head. The wages of sin is still death. We are all of us sinners. We thus all of us owe death. And that's why these promises, that's why this gospel is such good news. Because in it, our death problem is solved by Jesus Christ coming and dying that death. For us. Again there's, again, there's nothing else like this where it's clear, you can't argue from Scripture, someone has to die for sin. And it's either going to be you or it's going to be Jesus. Something has to be done. Someone's got to do something to get us back to God. It's either going to be you trying and failing because you can't do it, you're a sinner, or it's going to be Christ trying and succeeding because He can and because He has, because He is. God, he is God come to die for man in our place. There is nothing else like this in all the world. There is no other religion that offers this gospel good news of God dying in the place of man. And so again, the answer then cannot be clean up your act. The answer cannot be good enough, be good enough for God. The answer cannot be do some rituals or go to mass or do this, that, or the other. The answer is throw yourself at the feet of of the one who has been promised from the very beginning. And the answer is the grace of God given to you through the gift of faith. Believe in Jesus who came to die in the place of sinners. He dies so that we can live. That's the blessing. That's the revelation that the whole Old Testament is unpacking For us, this section is the entirety of human history in a few short verses. This is the revelation of God's great plan. And this, all of it, is about advancing the story. Yes, to get us to Abraham, but Paul tells us the point of Abraham is to get us to Christ, the one who would save his people, Shemite and Japhethite. And by the way, don't forget the line of Jesus. Don't forget that genealogy. Who's in there? Rahab. A Canaanite. Don't forget right, that God saved all kinds of people right, from all kinds of places. Right? We, have, we have Shemite, we have Canaanite, and we have Japhethite all being redeemed and saved by the grace of God um, from their sins by the death of Jesus Christ. That's what this blessing and this revelation is about. Let's close um, with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for the great privilege of preaching it. Father, I am not up to the task. Father, I pray uh, that your spirit would take that word. Father, I pray that you would impress these truths on our heart. I pray that you would do the work that needs to be done in me. You would do the work that needs to be done in every single one of us. Father, we see so clearly in all of these chapters of Genesis the great uh, danger deadliness of sin. Father, we see it here even in Noah. We see it in Ham. Father, we see it continuing on down through pain, and we see it in ourselves. We're going to see a lot of it in the Shemites and in your people as well. Father, we are in desperate need of your grace. So I pray that you would use these stories and use these revelations about you and about what you're doing um, to contrast you and your goodness and your holiness and your grace with us and our helplessness and with our sin, and use that to arrest our attention, uh, to draw us to you. Uh, Father, force us to put our gaze and our focus on Jesus Christ, the one promised in these early chapters of Genesis to come and solve our sin problem and to solve our death problem. Father, only you can do that um, by your spirit through your word. So we ask now that you would, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.